Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Peter Spiegel. We're glad you are here with us today. Please visit us at animalstodayradio.com and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Apple Podcasts. We are celebrating our 11th year on the air and in your earbuds. So how about that? You know, everyone is talking about this story in the news of an older woman. She was given a jail sentence for feeding stray cats. And really, everyone's talking about this. So we want to understand how this can possibly happen. And is there any way that this could have been an appropriate sentence? Bob Ferber is with us today. Bob is our legal expert, former Los Angeles animal cruelty prosecutor. And Bob... uh, We've chatted a little bit about this, but tell us what's going on here. Well, uh, as many people have heard, there was a, an article and the headline read, you know, woman gets 10 days in jail for feeding stray cats. And the initial articles simply said that. 79-year-old woman sent to jail and for feeding stray cats. And essentially, that was it. And yeah, all over, I... Myself and I'm sure you know people have been talking about it. Pretty much, people are universally outraged. How could anybody go after somebody for feeding cats, much less a 79 year old woman, and much less give them jail for that? Yeah. But when I read it as a prosecutor, I immediately sensed that there was way more behind that story. And then later on, CNN did a little bit more detailed story, which validated uh, what I suspected really was behind the story. Some of what I read delineated her uh, prior citations and convictions, so this didn't come out of nowhere. Right. Uh, The first uh, couple of things I saw didn't mention those citations, and then it did come out, you saw those later some more detailed stories. I, I think what this is about is, first of all, underlying this, and I'm not sure that any of the articles address this, that anybody involved in animal welfare and in the rescue of cats knows that feeding unneutered cats and not doing anything to reduce the population is really contributing to the problem. And anybody who's an animal lover feels for animals that are strays on the street, that don't have any, that are, you know, feral cats or wild cats that live in alleys, we feel for them. But on on the other hand, most people in animal welfare recognize that that is contributing to the problem by simply feeding them. So most communities have ordinances or laws prohibiting people from feeding cats that are stray cats, unless some communities have what's called trap-neuter release, where you can, or trap-neuter return. You can, you can get these cats neutered and then continue feeding them. But there are many communities that no matter whether they're neutered or not, they don't want you feeding stray cats in the community. Whether or not people agree with that or not, that is the law in some places. And in this community, it's not clear whether she was feeding on neutered cats or not, but I sense that that's probably what was happening. And what was behind it, the jail sentence, was that she had been cited numerous times and she kept doing it. In fact, not only had she been cited and convicted, she was actually put on probation by the court. And while she was on probation, she continued 
to feeding the to feed the cats in violation of the law. I can tell you, Peter, and your listeners, that as a prosecutor, it's extremely frustrating when you have somebody who is committing a relatively minor violation of the law, but keeps doing it. And you have compassion for that person. You don't want to punish them. You want them to stop doing what they're doing or to teach them how to do it in the right way. Maybe in this case, rescuing the cats and getting them neutered. But it appears that she was very stubborn about this and ignored court orders over and over again to stop doing this. And there is a point when a prosecutor and a judge, you're basically cornered where it's, what do you do? Do you allow the person to just flagrantly continue to violate the law or do you have to increase the punishment? And I can almost guarantee that there is nobody in that courtroom that wanted to give her a jail sentence, but she basically asked for it because she was given warnings in, in, in even in you know, an actual uh, court-ordered probation. And when you're on probation, the judge is basically saying, you do it one more time, and we're going to throw the book at you. And in this case, they only gave her, and I say only, 10 days in jail. She probably could have gotten a lot more. A little footnote to the story is that from the last thing I read, the court stayed the jail time. They they held on. They they were putting it over. I think the judge was going out of town, and they're going to review it one more time. To me, as a prosecutor, this is a very common and frustrating situation where the court system is trying to get somebody to comply with the law, and they're stubbornly ignoring it. And at some point. You have to either say, okay, we're just going to ignore the laws on the books, or we're going to have to punish this person to, in this case, get with the with the threat of jail. So I feel for everybody in this situation, but I've had people like this that, you know, refuse to obey the law, and at some point there is no other option available. Okay, so you have a little experience in this area. Do you think there's anything that unifies people like this? Or is there something psychologically wrong with them, or what's going on? Yeah, it's a really good point, a good question. Uh, one of the more common scenarios that we have in Los Angeles is uh, people who are doing recycling or in the middle of the night. We, I had several people over the years that were... Uh, they were collecting garbage and, and bottles in well in, in you know, clean uh, sort of suburban neighborhoods at two three in the morning, waking people up, making noise and disturbing, just ruining the neighborhood. And and the, the, nobody could go to sleep. And they get warned over and over and over again. Some of these people did have obsessive compulsive disorders. Some of them actually were schizophrenic. Some of them, I have to tell you, Peter, were just plain stubborn, where they just said, I don't care. I'm going to keep doing this because I think this because this is what I want to do. And and in this case, it happened to involve animals and, and helping animals. So instead of involving recycling or loud stereo every night and being warned over and over again, you've got to turn the stereo down at two in the morning. This involved animals. I, I suspect that if if she was somebody that was 
30 years old and blasting her stereo at 2, 3 in the morning every single night and waking neighbors and being told four times by a court, you've got to stop it, and she refused, I don't think anybody in the country would feel very sympathetic to her getting 10 days in jail. But because this is animals, which nobody loves animals, including the ones on the street, more than me. But at some point, it, it's certainly, you know, touched everybody. And unfortunately, the media kind of presented it as how could this outrageous judge throws the book at some helpless person who is just innocently trying to help some animals in their neighborhood. And there is, by the way, the, a factor that when people are feeding animals, stray animals in their neighborhood, it does, if you don't do it the right way, you, there's garbage, there's cans, it brings rodents, it brings uh, disease, it, 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 it ruins the quality of life in their neighborhood. And there are a lot of people in the country that do proper care for outdoor cats, trying to neuter them, cleaning up the empty cans after they fed them. But this is apparently somebody who just was, you know, stubbornly doing it her way and affecting the quality of life in the neighborhood. And she, in my opinion, she pushed the court to a point where they had no other option but to put her in jail. I suspect that the judge is going to try to figure out in the next couple of days, an, an alternative way to not put her in jail. But if she continues to to disobey the law, the, that's the ultimate way that any court can force somebody to do something. No matter how big a fine, no matter how much community service, if they keep doing it over and over again, there's only one ultimate punishment that can stop somebody and force them to obey the law, and it's jail. And I... I'm sure that nobody wanted to impose this on her, but maybe some sort of court-ordered evalu- mental evaluation might help. Maybe some rescue groups will step in and assist her in doing it in compliance with the law. Maybe they even need to change the law. We don't know the details about the ordinance in that community, but I wanted the listeners to understand that there's more to this story than just a 79-year-old animal lover being thrown in jail for doing a good deed. Yeah. But in this case, at least because of my experience, I felt a little bit bad for the people in the court system because I can imagine how hard they've tried to get her to do what is the law. Very interesting, Bob. So we'll both uh, follow this and see what the resolution is, and we can talk further, okay? Yes. Okay, Bob Ferber, thanks very much. Speak to you soon. Take care, Peter. I had a brief discussion with my dear friend, Professor Hank Holzer from ISAR about this case. And his first thought was that probably this woman had cats in the house and maybe even she was a hoarder. He suggested the judge should issue a search warrant and find out what's going on in there, and that might help him navigate what to do in this situation. And like I said, we'll see where this goes, and we'll share the latest with you when it transpires. You are listening to Animals Today. More after this break. Hi, this is Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of Animals Today. And here are a few more ways to be kind to animals, beginning with this. Report suspected animal abuse or neglect. If you see an underfed dog or an animal left in a car on a hot day, report it right away. You can be saving a life. Try a vegetarian or even better, a vegan diet. 
even just beginning with one day a week. Decreasing and then eliminating your consumption of animals is probably the best way to show your appreciation for them and for the environment too. Don't buy cosmetics or household products that have been tested on animals. That's easy these days and there are apps to guide your purchases. And finally, don't wear clothing made from animals. Say no to fur and leather and then you can give up wool and silk as well. It's easier than you might imagine. This message is sponsored by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit us at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Welcome back. The largest frog on Earth is the Goliath frog, also known as the Goliath bullfrog, and the giant slippery frog. They are found in Cameroon and Equatorial Guinea, and they can weigh up to 17 pounds or more, and their bodies can be more than a foot in length. The world's smallest frog, discovered in Papua New Guinea, measures a mere seven millimeters long and may be the world's smallest vertebrate. One reason I find frogs so delightful and fascinating is the huge variety they present. Now, another person who thinks a lot about frogs, a lot more than I do, I'm sure, is Matt Ellerbeck, frog advocate and conservationist. Visit him at SaveAllFrogs.com. Welcome, Matt. Well, uh, thank you so much for having me. Matt, I know you have a number of frog issues on your mind, so let's begin with frog populations. Are they really in decline? Yes. So there's around 5,000 frog species worldwide, and of that, over 30% are listed as at risk of extinction. So that's pretty significant. Um, and then several frog species have already gone extinct. So frog populations are very much under threat. And that is why, you know, we're seeing those statuses, like those extreme endangered statuses um, being applied to them because they are experiencing such a dramatic decline. And we talk about similar issues with other species all the time. Uh, why are frogs in decline? It's really an amalgamation of several reasons. Um, the first being the loss of habitat. So essentially, you know, if a frog loses its home, its odds of survival are not very good. So places like marshes and wetlands and meadows and woodlands, too many of these natural green spaces are being destroyed for developmental construction and agriculture. Now, where good habitat does remain, it's often degraded through pollution and contaminants and pesticides and oil and gasolines and frogs, being amphibians, are extremely sensitive to any kind of pollution or contaminant because they don't have scales on their skin like reptiles um, or fur like mammals. They don't really have any kind of armor or protection. They just have very delicate, permeable skin. So that makes them especially sensitive to those sort of substances being in their environment. And then a lot of frogs are killed on roads every year because a lot of roads crisscross between their habitats and what happens especially in the United States and Canada is a lot of the frogs um, that are breeding in the springtime they have to cross over roads to get to breeding pools and then unfortunately you have a lot of them being killed en masse and, and what's especially sad about that is that's the mature 
breeding portion of the population being killed. So not only are we losing those frogs, but because they're unable to breed because they're being killed, we're losing the next generation of frogs as well. And then another thing that happens is harvesting. So frogs are being captured from the wild to be sent off for the fishing bait trade and for food markets. And, you know, when we add all of these things up and then there's climate change and disease, it accounts for a massive number of frogs being lost every year due to these human-induced threats. So that's why our frogs are not doing very well and why so many are at risk of extinction. Okay, so populations are in decline. Matt, what cruelty issues do individual frogs face? I want to mention in terms of that is that frogs are vertebrate animals just like dogs and cats and just like dogs and cats they experience pain and suffering and cruelty unfortunately there's that old misconception you know that old usage of word wording cold-blooded and often people think of frogs being cold-blooded therefore they don't feel pain that's not true first off they're not cold-blooded they're ectothermic which just means their body temperature is reliant on the environment around them they have to warm up or cool off um, via behavioral changes and and utilizing different areas in their environment that's all that means Um, so frogs are very capable of feeling pain and suffering and unfortunately they experience that with a lot of those trades I just talked about. So food markets, a lot of these frogs are sold live. Um, in some food markets, they skin the frogs alive and sell them that way. Like, you, like We're talking about really horrific things that happen to these poor animals. And then the bait trade, you know, frogs are sold live for fishing bait and then are, are stabbed with hooks and then tossed into the water. Now, now, say I was going on a radio program and I was talking about, you know, someone was using kittens or puppies and they were stabbing them with hooks. Like, there would be massive outrage. People would be appalled by such things. But I think because frogs being amphibians and, and there are those misconceptions about them slow, slimy and cold and cold-blooded, you know, people are often not as sympathetic towards them. So it's important to really make those connections that, you know, the frog is a living breathing vertebrate creature just like dogs and cats and other mammals that we're more familiar with and just like those animals they are experiencing a lot of cruelty from these trades that are exploiting them so not only do these trades are affecting their numbers in the wild and are a serious conservation concern but it is also a very very concerning matter in terms of animal cruelty like you know like I said we're literally you know there's trades set up where anglers are, you know, using frogs en masse and then stabbing them with hooks while they're still alive. So, and not only is that cruel to the frog, and not only do those bait trades deplete wild populations, but it also spreads disease, too. Like, frog populations are crashing because of um, two diseases in particular, ranavirus and chytrid fungus, and say they catch a batch of frogs and then ship them 100 miles away and you, to an area where the environment is healthy and disease-free, 
and then you have a diseased animal and then it's cast into that wetland, then it's just spread those diseases around to previously unaffected areas. So you can get a pretty good idea how through those um, the shipping and unnatural movement of animals via these trades, how those diseases can be spread very, very quickly and, and to all these other places. So the bait trade and the, the trade of animals for dissections and food markets, these are all really triple-pronged threats. There are conservation concerns, there are cruelty concerns, and there are concern in terms of spreading the amphibian diseases to other areas. So those three in particular are very, very damaging. We are speaking with Matt Ellerbeck, frog advocate and conservationist. The website is saveallfrogs.com. And Matt, we are going to continue this discussion because we're just scratching the surface here in an upcoming segment, and we'll look forward to speaking to you real soon. Sounds great. Stick around more with animals today after the break. Hi, it's Dr. Lori from Animals Today Radio. Today's Animals Today fun facts are about penguins. Specifically, the world's biggest penguin, or at least the fossilized remains of it, were recently discovered in Antarctica. 37 million years ago, a giant penguin, almost seven feet tall, inhabited the rocky shores and the seas. Scientists believe this huge aquatic bird would have been able to stay underwater 40 minutes or longer, allowing it to hunt deep sea fish. The second largest penguin ever discovered was merely five feet tall. And there are your Animals Today fun facts for today. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. about hosting a radio show about animals is that we receive a ton of unsolicited samples of pet products of all sorts. We also get scores of books, but that's not what I want to talk about today. What we receive that leads to many questions around here are about dog treats and chewable dog toys. And we're always trying to figure out what's safe and what's appropriate for our dogs. Anyone who has dogs has to go through this process of deciding what's a good toy or treat for them, whether the item is safe or a choking hazard or nutritious or potentially toxic. So dog people, let's find out what we need to know about the safety of treats and toys. And here with us now is Dr. Doug Coons, Medical Director, Desert VCA Animal Hospital in Palm Springs, California. Welcome to the program, Dr. Coons. Oh, thanks, Lori. I'm happy to be here. Doug, let's start with toys, and particularly the sorts of toys that a dog might chew on. What are the ideal toys, and what are the things that, in your view, are risky? You know, the most important thing is that the toy is sized appropriately for the dog. So, you know, you don't want to go and buy a three-foot-long rawhide bone for your chihuahua. So size the toy appropriate uh, for the size of the dog, and it shouldn't be something that can be destroyed uh, rapidly and ingested. So 
lots of times some of the softer toys uh, that have squeakers inside can sometimes be a little dangerous because some dogs will just obsessively go after those until they tear that squeaker out and uh, we once in a while have to take a squeaker out of a dog and that's that's not fun for for your veterinarian or fun for the dog so uh, again they should be pretty much indestructible toys Let's get into some specific examples. Doug, how about the very hard plastic bones that are sometimes advertised for strong chewers, like, for example, Nyla bone? Some of them are so hard, I can't imagine them being safe for teeth. Exactly, Lori. My dental specialist, you know, there is a specialty in veterinary, in, in veterinary medicine for, for veterinary dentists, and they tell me that you shouldn't give your dog anything that you can't dent with your thumbnail. And uh, particularly the nyla bones and some of the other really hard bones, we, we tend to see slab fractures of the teeth, particularly some of the, the larger teeth on the, on the upper uh, arcade of teeth uh, will develop a slab fracture, and then the tooth has to be extracted, or they they require a, a root canal. So, you know, if you can't dent it with your thumbnail, you probably shouldn't give it to your dog. Good advice. How about the toys that are made of or have heavy-duty pieces of rope? One of my dogs loves them, but I have to tell you, Doug, we see bits of rope in her stool, and besides being a little gross, it always worries us a little bit. You know, those probably are pretty safe. And if there are little bits of rope that uh, get ingested, uh, they're probably just going to pass through without uh, causing any issues. In my 40 years of practice, uh, I don't think I've ever seen an issue with that kind of a toy. And by the way, since we're talking about rope, what is your opinion about dogs playing tug of war? Is, is it okay for their teeth? You know, it, it actually is is okay for their teeth. We we seldom see any harm coming from that kind of activity. You know, dogs sometimes will carry things in their mouth that are a little bit abrasive, and that can cause wear on the teeth, particularly tennis balls. Uh, dogs that are kind of obsessed with a tennis ball will see the the canine, the long teeth. Uh, uh, worn down to expose the the, uh, the nerves, and that that's not a good thing. So I I don't like uh, you know things that are habitually carried in the mouth that uh, that are abrasive. Oh, very good. Okay, how about the rubber toys like the classic Kong toys? I love Kongs uh, for two reasons. Number one, they're they're pretty indestructible. They have give to them, so they're, they're not likely to fracture a tooth. But even more importantly, those kinds of toys can entertain a dog because you can pack them with their food. Uh, some behaviorists uh, recommend uh, putting peanut butter in them as long as it doesn't have xylitol, uh, and then freezing them. And then the dogs will occupy themselves with those for hours, particularly dogs that, that uh, tend to be larger breed dogs that uh, have some anxiety and just being cooped up all the time. This gives them a job. What a great tip. Doug, some toys have thick fabric as one of their main components. What do you think about those? 
you know, it, as long as it's not destroyed quickly, I don't have a problem with the ones that are fabric. They're, again, they're soft. They're not going to cause any harm to the teeth. And generally, if they get pieces of it off, uh, it's going to pass. But the big thing is, if the toy starts to get destroyed, throw it away. Don't risk the, you know, the dog ingesting major parts of it that would then require removal. Doug, earlier you commented about the squeaky toys. You know, these toys have a stuffing or filling to them, and they also have this squeaking device, which we often see as two parts. One is a softer, hollow plastic compressible balloon-type piece, and the other is a small, hard plastic cylinder that makes the sound when the air gets pushed through it. I would have to say our dogs would ingest all of this if we let them. Again, the the key uh, to the squeaky toys is does the dog just enjoy playing with it or is the dog destroying it? And if the dog's destroying it, it's not a not a good choice. I've had dogs that have had squeaky toys, and they, they love to squeak them and carry them around, but they haven't destroyed them. But if they're destroying them, then there's potential for ingestion. Right. So, Doug, what are your recommendations for dogs who seem to be able to destroy and tear apart any kind of toy? Well, I, I absolutely have angst over that. I don't like to see a toy that's easily destroyed or even that's difficult to destroy, but once the dog starts to destroy it, there's the potential for ingestion. And it's just better to err in the realm of of safety and, and not let the dog continue to destroy a toy once that process has begun. Throw it away and buy a new toy. Okay, so Doug, let's move on to treats and animal bones. Overall, what are your likes and dislikes in terms of dog safety? Well, again, I, I, I'll refer back to the, to the statement I made about the toys uh, that my dental specialists uh, say, and that is if you can't dent it with your thumbnail, don't give it to your dog. And so, you know, giving a, a bone carries some risk with it. And again, we tend to see these slab fractures of the upper fourth premolar, which is the big tooth, chewing tooth uh, on on either side uh, in the upper upper teeth. And so we want to stay away from things that are really hard like that. As much as dogs love those, you know, I've seen a little round bone that you get out of a, a round steak. Uh, dogs will chew the marrow out of it and then chew them. And sometimes that gets caught around the, the upper canine teeth. And, and then you have a trip to the vet trying to extract a bone from the mouth. So I, I'm not really big on those. I'm not really big on pig's ears and bully sticks uh, because those, uh, you know, are both animal parts and somebody, you know, found out that something that they were throwing away could be turned into income. And in the literature, there are reports of both of those harboring E. coli. Mm. And so uh, just, again, best to stay away from those. Or if you do use them, be sure you know the country of origin. If it's from the United States, there's been somewhat of an inspection process before those are marketed, whereas from some other countries, uh, there's a risk involved that you could infect your dog. So I'm, I'm not 
I'm not a fan of those. Doug, we've never been in the habit of giving our dogs rawhide because we've heard it can be particularly dangerous. What's your advice there? You know, again, rawhide uh, carries some risk because it's hard. I don't know if you've ever tried to dent a, a rawhide bone with your thumbnail. You can't do it. Yeah. So we do see fractured teeth from rawhide. Uh, the other thing that we see, particularly in the smaller rawhide things that are, you know, kind of the shape of a pencil, those can be ingested very quickly. And because they're eaten and the whole thing goes down, they can cause a, an intestinal obstruction. And we do find instances where we've had to go in and surgically remove those. Mm. So I'm, I'm not a big rawhide fan. Okay. And there's a popular brand name product that everyone seems to know about called Greenies. What are they made of and are they safe? Greenies are a vegetable fiber product. And actually, you know, there was a problem with greenies a few years ago, and and so the manufacturer went through a process of revamping their product. And greenies are are really good. And there are several companies that that make greenies. There's a greenie made by one company that's impregnated with chlorhexidine, and chlorhexidine is a, a, a chemical, but it's used as a human mouthwash. We use it to cleanse a wound, and that chlorhexidine that's impregnated in those greenies is antibacterial to the mouth, so it really does help to keep the bacteria down. There's a newer product called Oravet that is like a greenie. It has those long-strand vegetable fibers, which help to scrape the plaque off the teeth, but it also has another product, again, that comes from human medicine that softens plaque and calculus so that when the dog chews that treat, it softens the calculus, and then the long-strand vegetable fibers that surround it help to remove that. So appropriate treats like that can really be a benefit because even though the gold standard is brushing your dog's teeth, we all know realistically that uh, there is not every dog out there uh, is going to be amenable to that. One final question I have for you. Is it okay to let my dogs eat ice cubes once in a while? I mean, it makes one of my dogs so happy for a few seconds, but I've read that you really shouldn't do this. You know, it it runs the same danger as you and I chewing on ice. You've got something very cold and very hard, and it can lead to, to tooth fractures. Now, that said, sometimes if I have a dog that's got a little bit of an upset tummy and has had a vomiting problem, I recommend putting two or three ice cubes in a bowl for a dog to lick and drink the water, and that controls the amount of water that's ingested. So... I'm not totally against ice cubes, but uh, as a regular treat, I I don't recommend it because, again, the, the potential for tooth fracture. Veterinarian Dr. Douglas Coons, this was so informative and educational. Thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome, Lori. It's been my pleasure. More with Animals Today right after the break. back to animals today. Hey, Peter. Hey, Lori. Do you worry about going in the ocean? Oh, uh, I worry about jellyfish. Worry about jellyfish? Do you worry jellyfish. about sharks? 
No, I don't worry about sharks. Maybe I should. I want to know how much you know about sharks. Okay. Not Let's much. see. I'm going to just tell you not much. I have a quiz for you. Yes. All about sharks. Okay. Ready? Peter, true or false, you have a greater chance of being struck dead by lightning than being killed by a shark attack. Mm, I'm going to say that is true. That is true. About 30 people die during shark attacks each year. But it is true. For every one human killed by a shark, how many sharks are killed by humans? 200,000, a half a million, or two million? Two million. That's correct. For every human killed by a shark, two million sharks are killed by humans. Isn't that sad? Yes. Scientists used to, I I don't know if they still do, but they used to study shark cartilage to research possible cures for what? For arthritis? Cancer. Oh, yeah. Scientists study shark cartilage to research possible cures for cancer because sharks rarely ever develop cancer. Yeah, it didn't work out so well. Right. What is the world's largest shark? The great white shark, tiger shark, whale shark? pretty sure that's the whale shark. Very good. It can grow up to 50 feet long and weigh more than 40,000 pounds. True or false? Sharks have an acute sense of hearing. Oh, hearing. That's true. True is correct. Some sharks can hear prey from up to 3,000 feet away. Sharks lose a lot of teeth and grow them back quickly. So how many teeth do you think sharks go through in a lifetime? Okay, I'm going to guess about a 500 teeth per life. 30,000. Oh my goodness. The average shark has 40 to 45 teeth and can have up to seven rows of replacement teeth. So if you're one of those people who likes to wear a shark's tooth around your neck, like it's something special, it really isn't. They're all over the place. How many bones do sharks have in their body? Oh, I think I know they don't have any bones. Did you know they're classified as vertebrates? Well, yeah. Okay. Isn't that interesting though? Okay. Vertebrate means you have a bony skeleton, right? Oh, that's good paradox there. I wonder how that slid through. The term cartilaginous fish means that the structure of the animal's body is formed of cartilage instead of bone. They don't have a bony skeleton like many other fish do. Peter, did sharks inhabit the earth before, during, or after the dinosaurs appeared? Before. How did you know what I was going to ask? I, I know it. How did I know? I, could I just have said know. before the. I know, be- before the planet of the apes. <laughs> 400 million years ago. Sharks inhabited the earth 200 million, 200 million years million before years. the dinosaurs right. appeared right. and have changed only minimally during that time. I know, that's really amazing. It's incredible. What percent of shark attack victims are men? Oh, uh, how do they taste? Let's see. I, if I was a shark, uh, I'm going to say that 90, 85% are men. How do they taste? Is that. <laughs> Men taste so much better than women. Yes, 90%. Despite the fact that almost equal amount of men and women swim in the ocean, men account for nearly 90% of shark attack victims. Mm -hmm. Do you think most shark attacks occur in relatively shallow waters or deep waters? I'll say the shallow waters. Yep. About two-thirds of shark attacks on humans have occurred in less than six feet of water. Do sharks lay eggs or give birth to live young? Okay, live birth. It's actually both. Oh, some sharks. Some sharks lay eggs, others give birth to live young. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. True or false? The film Jaws, though heavily fictionalized, was based on a real incident in 1916 where four people were killed by a shark off the coast of New Jersey. Okay, that story. I'm going to say that's a true story. It is true. Did you know that, though? No, no. Yeah, I didn't either. Better get a bigger boat. 
Remember that line? Yes. Oh my God. Is that how? Is that was that the exact line? I, I don't know. Remember. I can't remember. But there's some. Or you're going to need a bigger. Yeah, boat. yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> After they first spotted Jaws. Yeah. There's a few pretty intense moments in that movie. I know, and not the fake thing coming out of the water. That's supposed to be a shark, though. That was pretty old-fashioned. <laughs> the cookie cutter shark is named after what? Cutter shark. I don't know. Oh, oh, is this the shape that it leaves in your yes. in your body after it takes a bite out? <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's good. That's Did horrible. you know that, or was no, that just like just an a, educated guess? Oh, that's a horrible thing. <laughs> oh, you get bitten by a shark. Oh, this must be oh, a cookie. Oh, look, my cutter shark. Cookie cutter. Sh- don't piranhas leave a certain shape when I they can, take a little bite out of your like flesh ice cream also. scoop or yeah, a little oh. <laughs> I think okay they do. I, you asked I'm not going in the ocean this, this okay. year. I don't care I don't I'm not going in deep water or shallow water or anything I'm just gonna stay by the cocktail lounge <laughs> you're gonna stay in the waiting pool with I, cocktail in each hand <laughs> I, I think waiting pools are pretty dangerous too if you know what I mean <laughs> True or false, some sharks can live in both salt and fresh water. Oh, I'm going to say that's true. That's true. Bull sharks can live in both salt and fresh water by regulating the substances in their blood. Yeah, that ability is just the most amazing thing to think about. That's it, Peter. You did pretty good. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> and thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Hi, I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and this Animals Today Minute is about dog bites and how to avoid and prevent them. According to the CDC, approximately 4.5 million dog bites on people occur yearly. That means about 1 in 72 people get bitten each year by dogs. Now, we all love our dogs, but it's smart to know some of the facts about bites. National Dog Bite Prevention Week takes place during the second full week of April each year and focuses on educating people about preventing dog bites. According to the AVMA, most if not all bites can be prevented. By far, children are the most common victims of dog bites, followed by the elderly and, yes, postal carriers. We all know that the medical consequences of bites can be serious, like causing infections, causing severe pain, requiring surgery, causing disfigurement, and so on. The American Society of Plastic Surgeons reported that nearly 29,000 reconstructive procedures were performed in 2016 for injuries caused by dog bites. And dog bites often result in homeowners' insurance claims. According to the data of the Insurance Information Institute, there were more than 18,000 dog bite insurance claims in 2017, with the average cost paid out per claim being about $37,000. When dogs bite, it is usually in response to something like the dog being stressed, scared, startled, or threatened. So the situations need to be managed by us people. And dog owners should properly socialize their pets. There's lots of information online about how to do that. And duh, we should keep our dogs on leashes when they're out. And choose the right dog for your family. And of course, make sure they're fixed. Do appropriate obedience training and keep them well exercised. Remember, a tired dog is a happy dog. 
A few especially risky situations have been identified, including when the dog is not with its owner, when the dog is with its owner, but the owner has not given permission to pet the dog, injured or sick dogs, dogs that are sleeping or eating, and growling and barking dogs. There are other common sense things to do to avoid bites, like avoiding placing one's hand through a fence where a dog is on the other side, and allowing dogs who want to be left alone their space. It bears repeating that far and away, most people who are bitten by dogs are children. So parents and dog guardians keep that in mind when they're near each other. Everyone agrees, even though dogs are man's best friend, there are too many people getting bitten by dogs. Do your part to make avoidable dog bites a rare occurrence. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and that's your Animals Today Minute for today.